0: Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics Measure Up podcast. We are joined by Brandon Metcalf today, the founder and CEO of Place Technology. Today we'll be covering three main topics with Brandon. First, prioritizing cash management and cash forecasting in early stage SaaS companies. Second, cash management best practices, including the use of technology. And third, what are some of the top metrics to facilitate great cash management and cash forecasting? Brandon, please take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics at Major Up podcast.
1: Hey, Ray, thanks for uh, having me on. I've been a big fan and following what you're doing for a little while. So excited to chat with you. Um, you know, my my background is a little bit different. I started my career in banking when I was in school, and after about six years of that, got bored and decided I wanted to move to a different industry and stumbled into the staffing and recruiting industry with Kelly Services. Did that, held a lot of different roles, leadership roles across the country, but I eventually landed at a um, retained headhunting firm in San Francisco called CB Partners, where essentially I was recruiting senior level finance folks at top tech companies. Long story short, was there for a couple of years, got recruited by Google, actually turned Google down, said, no, Google, I didn't want to work for you, which was a big decision to make at the time. But I turned it down because CB Partners gave me the opportunity to take over running technology for the company which fast forward, that led to me coming with an idea for building a software company, which became Talent Rover, which was an operating system for staffing and recruiting firms across the world. I ended up scaling that to nine global offices with companies as large as the ADECO Group. 2017, we were rated as the ninth fastest growing software company in America, which was cool. And then we got bought by our biggest competitor in 2018. And all of that experience really led me to creating what I'm doing now with Place, which was creating a software to solve financial operating reporting challenges that you have with scaling SaaS companies, which ultimately has led to, to our conversation today. Well,
0: wow, that's a pretty interesting journey from recruiter to recruiting technology to a financial management platform. It reminds me a little bit of my career where I went from an engineer to a sales and marketing leader, and now I'm doing benchmarks all day long. So, One of the greatest things about our career journey is it can be very diverse and always engaging, right, Brandon? Absolutely. Well, let's jump into today's primary topic, and that's kind of the increased importance of cash management, or at least the increased buzz and noise on LinkedIn, et cetera, around cash management, especially in today's more uncertain, I call it cautious capital environment. In fact, my friend Ben Murray, the SAS CFO, says that, you know, discipline, financial management and cash management never goes out of style. We just talk about it more sometimes. So let me ask you as an entrepreneur with many companies and now providing kind of financial management platform for SaaS companies, what's the importance of cash management, both in good times, but also in these more challenging times, Brandon?
1: Ben's a very smart man. What he's saying is spot on. It's really how I've always been We're in my companies where cash just doesn't grow on trees, even if investors want to particularly give it to you more at certain times than others. You know, a talent Rover, cash forecasting, cash management was just something that we got really, really good at. We developed all these models to, to manage cash flow, to really understand what was coming in and out of the business Primarily because we were we were angel funded, like we raised $28 million for that business and all except for 3 million came from angels, 3 million came from our largest company, our largest customer. So we never actually did an institutional round. So we had to be good at cash management because we had to keep everyone updated on what was going on. And, you know, as I scaled the company, we had eight global entities. So not only was it doing cash management, it was doing cash management in eight different countries with foreign exchange, currencies and consolidations. And it was a beast. But we also knew the importance, like everything in a business, just about everything, if not everything, cash is always a consideration for the decisions you're going to make or it should be. You just can't run out of cash or else you don't have a business. You can't miss payroll or else you don't have a staff. So understanding how it works is so critical. And I think right now we're seeing that the growth at all cost mentality that SaaS has been living under, that's going away. Investors aren't investing in the same manner that they were. They're still making investments, don't get me wrong. But now it's it's a different mindset of you know how can you stretch every dollar that you have to really build a sustainable business while still growing? But doing it in a more cash-effective way, I think, is the main topic that people have. As I was saying about Ben being smart, I think this is just a healthy way to run a business in general.
0: Well, interesting. $28 million, of which $25 million was through Angels. And I'm sure it wasn't all at once. It was probably over time. So let me ask you this question, Brandon. Both from your own experience, but now providing financial management, both advice and technology, is there a standard kind of, target cash runway that you think early stage SaaS companies should have? When I say early stage, I'm going to break that down into less than $5 million and then maybe 5 to $20 million of ARR. Right now, investors are saying, oh, you need to extend your cash runway. But is that six months? Is it 24 months? Do you have Any ideas for best practices there?
1: It just depends. It depends on your business. And it depends on your relationship with investors, your current investors. And I think that's something super early stage companies can sometimes forget that people invest, especially less than a $5 million ARR company, they invest in the founders and the founding team and the leadership team in general. And that's a relationship you have to massage and nurture. It's not just like, thank you for the cash. I'm going to go do what I want and run the company. It's How do I keep them informed? How do I keep them educated? How do I keep them aware of the decisions we're making? And more importantly, here are the challenges that we have. Do you have any input or guidance or advice? And by keeping investors that close, which can be kind of terrifying, especially if it's your first company that you're building, wait, I don't want to tell them everything. I try to tell them everything because I want them to know what's going on. Because if I need to raise more capital or if we're facing some big challenge or whatever, These are typically very seasoned professionals that either can give you good guidance and advice or they can connect you with the right people that can help you solve the challenges that you're facing. So, you know, at Talent Rover, like I was talking about, we raised the $28 Well, we always had an open round, if, if you will. So, to your point, we didn't raise all of that at once. We raised it over the, what, seven years that company was alive, or before we sold the company, I should say. And it was, you know, a million here, a couple million here as we needed it. But we really depended on our cash flow forecasts to understand it, which is why I've always done direct method cash flow forecasting, transactions in, transactions out. I'm not the type, and this is why it's it's different for every business. I'm not the, the type of founder that wants to go out and raise a huge check. I don't want necessarily to do a 10, 20 million, 30 million dollar round unless I know really how I'm going to deploy that capital in the most effective way. I've always been the type of let's raise 1 million, 2 million, 3 million, et cetera. Like for place, for example, we've raised $10 million today, but it's been a couple million dollars at a time so we can execute on how to best leverage that capital while also protecting shareholder value and delivering on what we need to. But the only way I can feel comfortable with that is if my investors and me are on the same page. So when I know I need to do the next round, it's there. I had conversations with two of the VCs that are invested in this place, and they both said the same thing. Don't go raise capital now. Just run a really capital-efficient business, and that's what we're doing.
0: Wow. When you talk about raising $2 million to $3 million at a time, kind of a very iterative process, my mind goes into... You know, how do you establish value? Is it debt versus equity? You know, what's the follow on kind of repricing of the valuation? So I'm just, I, I can't go without going there. So when you do that kind of more iterative approach, how do you deal with valuation?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we've we done it a few different ways. You know, Place was the first company I had venture brought in. We brought in a really great VC. who has been actually a partner with us throughout, where, you know, we will talk about what the value of the company should be. But then I go out as well as I hire an independent valuation firm, and I've always done this. This is what we did at Talent Rover too. We go out and hire a valuation firm and say, okay, give me football field analysis or, or five different types of valuation analysis of what we think the, the company is actually valued at. Talent Rover, we did that because it was always angels. And we wanted to make sure we were being very fair with what we priced it at, but we also wanted to be very strategic. Like my last valuation that I got at place, we had a pretty broad range and we decided to go on the lower side of the range for the pricing of the round, which could be kind of controversial, right? I'm giving away more equity than I need to. But it was also like, well, we don't know what's going to happen. And if we go to the max amount, then all of a sudden we have a very defined path of what we have to do in order to not do a down round and to continue to entice investors to come in. We decided to do it on the lower end because we are confident with where we're going to go. But we also wanted the flexibility to write out what was potentially going to happen. This bull market that we've been in has been incredible for a very, very long time. Eventually, the shoe was going to drop. And maybe it's my banking background where I'm like, I want to be a little bit more conservative with this. And now we're actually set up really well because now when we do our next round, which will be in the beginning of next year, we have a different story we can tell because we're still growing at a great rate. And we could achieve that higher valuation if we wanted to, but now I have more flexibility as to what I want to what I want to accomplish. I tell you, your crystal ball was pretty good to actually go on the lower end of valuation
0: because a lot of companies down who went on the top end of valuation are having a hard time with what happens when I need more cash in the future. It's a down round. Do I have to change liquidation preferences? How does that impact previous investors? That was really forward-looking, Brandon. But I got to go back to the main topic, which is cash management, cash forecasting. I want to start at the foundation, and that's cash burn. I don't want to just assume everyone knows what cash burn is. So can you define what cash burn is and how to understand what are the primary expense items that really are driving cash burn?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many SaaS terms out there, right? You can get lost on just the jargon of what we're talking about. Cash burn in its its very simple form is is really just looking at how much money you're bringing in versus how much money you're spending to operate the business. So for early stage SaaS companies, you're almost always spending more money than you're bringing in. So that amount of money that you're spending in excess of what you're bringing in, that's the burn. Like how much cash are you burning to keep the company alive?
0: One of the interesting things about the SaaS business model for years has been annual subscriptions. And of course, best practice was let's get paid up front for the annual subscription, which there was an influx of cash right up front, though your expenses happen over the next 12 months. So one of my questions is, is that harder to manage when you know that you're getting all the cash up front for a subscription, but the expense to service that happens over 12 months?
1: So there's some tricks here, right? So that annual payment, there's a reason why SaaS companies like to do that because you want all the cash in now because you're burning more cash than you're spending. So if I can collect more now, then I, I can balance that out a bit. It's The same thing with how you pay your vendors as well. It's like how much are you paying your vendors and when and what, what are you negotiating on that side? So it's not just money in it's also money out. And that can be very challenging to manage it. At, at Talent Rover, you know, we were doing all this in crazy spreadsheets. And you know, me flying around the world, literally two weeks a month, I was doing around the world trips, which was fun and exhausting, but uh, mostly fun. I would still spend 20 to 30 hours of my personal time on the spreadsheets. And our accounting team, we had a team of five to seven people. They were spending hundreds of hours updating this stuff. Because Again, we did direct method cash flow forecasting. So we were tracking transactions in and transactions out to actually understand what our what our cash balances are now and what our cash balances are going to be in the future. Think of it like managing a big personal checkbook, logging all that stuff. So, you know, if I can get a bigger amount of cash in now, then I can actually manage better what I'm going to spend that on, especially if I'm controlling a similar process for expenses as to how much I'm going to pay when. So... You know, there's a, there's a lot of tricks to it, but it is a it is a challenging thing to manage if you don't have the right systems in place to, to really enable you to do so.
0: We're going to talk about that next because we conducted some recent research and not specific to cash management, but to financial management and SaaS metrics management. And 74% of SaaS companies are still using Excel and a manual process as their primary way to manage SaaS metrics, including cash forecasting so i was shocked that it's that high and i'm wondering well why why are three quarters of SaaS companies not using automation and technology to help manage their performance metrics and their cash management cash forecast why is that brandon why are people using their financial platforms they're using
1: you know, we see it all the time. I mean, with what we do, 74% seems actually a little bit low from, I think, what we see, especially with early stage SaaS companies. And we focus, cash management is one of the areas that we do, but we do you know, uh, subscription management, revenue management, billing, and then all the fp side. So we literally have hundreds and hundreds of SaaS metrics that are pre-built. And when we engage with our customer base, early stage SaaS companies, you know, a lot of these companies are, are just trying to get the information produced. And I struggled with this exact problem at Talent Rover, where, like I was saying, we're spending all this time creating all these models and spreadsheets and updating the data. And then, you know, the model always ended up, something always ended up being wrong. And then my version of the spreadsheet is different from accounting's version of the spreadsheet. And then, you know, where's the body buried? Like, where's where this little gremlin going to pop up that inevitably something is wrong? And how big of a deal is it? what impact is that going to make? So it's probably, in my opinion, the most difficult part of running uh, a software company, an early estate software company, is to pull all this together in a meaningful way so you can understand it. But what other choices have you had up until recent? Like we bought uh, an enterprise solution at Talent Rover, and after 10 months of trying to get the thing to work, we ripped it back out because we were changing the business too much. Anytime we changed the general ledger... All of a sudden, the whole thing would break and we'd have to start again. So, I mean, it, it's, it is the genesis of why I'm doing what I'm doing is because I got frustrated, just like I know so many of the customers we talk to are frustrated with having to do this in Excel. I just don't think it's a standalone solution. I just don't think you can build like a cash management solution or, you know, a subscription solution or, or one, a one-off thing. I think all of this stuff is deeply connected. And I think when you actually connect it in a meaningful way, And what I mean by that is you connect it with workflows and business insight to actually take the company through the journey of how do you get from lead to collecting cash. Then all of a sudden you can start to actually solve the problem that people are using Excel and manual processes to solve is there's so many variables. There's so many different things that change that unless it's truly connected in in a very thoughtful way for the industry it's built for... It's difficult to achieve the value from technology. But I think now you're seeing not only our company, I think there's a lot of other great players out there as well that are doing things in slightly different ways that are helping companies to no longer have to depend on spreadsheets. With a caveat, I don't think spreadsheets are going anywhere. anywhere. I love spreadsheets. Like Even though I'm a software that helps eliminate the need for a lot of their usage, I still do a lot in spreadsheets outside of the system because sometimes it's just easier to do simple things that don't require so much data gathering and so much connectivity. So I think we we've genuinely turned a corner with technology.
0: Well, I'm going to double click on this topic because you know there are specialized platforms like Place Technology, et cetera, to help better manage you know, cash management, cash forecasting. But if you look at your traditional core financial management platforms, and I'm not going to name them here, right? They've over time had to integrate into a lot of the source systems, right? Whether that's your subscription billing platform or your CRM, et cetera. A lot of them now are starting to do some basic SaaS metrics calculations. Why do you think that the core financial management platforms haven't moved more quickly to be the cash forecasting tool of choice?
1: They're not really forecasting systems, right? They're systems of record. So if you think about what an accounting system does, and we integrate with a lot of them. They're great resources. And when we do the integration, we actually bring up all their transactions and all of that. And accounting systems are brilliant at keeping score. What happened? how did it happen? Let's report off of that. What they're not really built to do is to tell you the future. And that's because they just don't have all of the pieces of data that are really needed. Like, do you really understand the sales forecast and the sales pipeline? Do you understand, you know, book, year deal deals, near-term pipeline, long-term pipeline, the difference of all the variation that's going to happen from that. And then throwing on all the rev rec and cash scheduling and all that. What about, do you understand hiring and what's the workforce plan? Like, I talked about this a lot a couple months ago when we were really in the great resignation, when that was the theme on LinkedIn of, you know, what happens if you're a finance person, you go out and you build this incredible financial model, which you spend weeks on, it's perfect, it's amazing. And in that financial model, you're going to hire five salespeople. And those five salespeople all have quarterly quotas, And those quotas all start at different times. And those quotas all have different ramp periods. What happens if you don't hire one of them on time? your whole model is now messed up. Like the cash that you were going to get in from booking those deals from quota isn't coming in. The revenue you're going to recognize from winning those deals isn't going to be recognized. So now what do you do? Well, you reforecast. So if you think about trying to do that in an accounting system where you just don't have all of those levers to pull all of those data points to actually be able to forecast off, it just doesn't work. I think you have seen a lot of the accounting systems do near-term forecasting which is is fairly accurate because you can actually go in and and do a little bit of direct method cash flow forecasting inside those tools to to get some accurate short-term cash. But again, I think the easiest answer is it's a system of record or scorekeeping historically versus a a true FP&A product is forward-looking crystal ball type stuff.
0: Brandon, you keep using a term and I'm going to back up for our listening audience because I must admit when I first spoke to you, I'm like, I don't understand what that is. And that is you talk about the direct method. So can you talk about what direct method is and what the alternative method is for cash forecasting or cash management?
1: Yeah, this is kind of a funny story because I'm just like, I'm no different than I think any of our people that we connect with or sell to or that use our products and of our customer base. At Talent Rover, we developed these spreadsheets, right, that we tracked every transaction in and out of the business from a cash standpoint. And then we looked at that and said, okay, well, this customer usually pays late. Let's go ahead and just their payment terms. Even though their payment term says 30 days, we know they're not going to pay for 60. And this vendor, like, they're cool if we pay late sometimes, we're going to go ahead and massage this. And we were moving transactions around in the cash forecast to get the desired cash flow that we wanted. This is direct flow cash flow forecasting, where you're using transactions to actually generate the cash forecast. The other way of doing it is indirect, which you're using balance sheet balances. So your accounts payable, accounts receivable balance, for example. Um, to predict when, when cash is going to come in and out. For me, when our controller at Talent Rover showed me that originally, I'm like, well, in my mind, it just doesn't seem as accurate because I can't like really see when stuff's going to come in and out. I'm just guessing based off of historically what's happened. The business changes too much. Like I was opening countries every other week, it felt like, or at least accounting was complaining I was doing. So like what we did last quarter is not what we're doing this quarter. The, the customers we have this quarter are very different from the customers last quarter, especially when we were going from SMB companies to like the ADECO group. It's a huge variation of what's going to happen there. So this is why we focused on creating these models that work cash in, cash out. But doing that is extremely time consuming. You have thousands of transactions every single month. How do you do that? This is exactly why I wanted to build a place to do it because I think it's the most accurate way to manage cash at an early
0: stage company. It's very interesting. I've been talking to quite a few founders and CEOs in the revenue intelligence space, and they talk about knowing all the different input signals that can impact your new business forecast. And an input signal can be, you know, when was the latest meeting with what role in a particular opportunity, right? So it sounds like you're almost doing the same thing. You're taking possibly thousands of input signals, each customer and how they pay, to inform your cash flow forecast
1: exactly what we're doing
0: i love it well this is the metrics that measure up podcast so we're going to pivot one last time and that is we're talking today a lot about cash management and cash forecasting and cash efficiency i put on my investor hat i think about capital efficiency right so there was a metric that you and i were talking about the other day that i was like well what a great way to kind of report your cash efficiency. So can you talk a little bit about those metrics that you use to inform your investors of cash efficiency?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have a lot. So, But the key ones, the one you're referencing, burn multiple, that's, that's not one that I created. I learned that from David Sachs at Kraft Ventures, which I thought is just a brilliant, simple way to keep track of how much money you're spending. So burn multiple is essentially your net cash burn divided by your net new ARR. In layman's terms, how many dollars do you have to spend to make a dollar? I thought that was brilliant. Because when I look with my leadership team every week on our metrics, and when I talk to the board, and I talk to the board a lot, and I talk to, like I mentioned, my investors a lot, it's simple. It's like, what's our growth multiple? What's our burn multiple? Those are the two driving main metrics for the whole company. How fast are we growing and how much cash is it going to take us to get there? We're also doing something, I think, that's a little different, where we're focused on. How long before we get to cash flow break even? That's like unheard of in SaaS, but we're actually focused on that. When can we get to cash flow break even? Because then we can really have more control over our destiny. But the specific metrics around cash that we pay attention to is absolutely burn multiple. I also don't use operated cash burn to, to forecast or plan. And it's not one forecast or plan, it's five different forecasts. Because I'm benchmarking how we're doing against each of those forecasts to get some indicators of where the business is actually trending. So I do forecast variance analysis, forecast actual variance analysis for each of those. I also do cash to qualified lead by source. Like how many dollars am I actually having to spend for that lead source to give me a qualified lead? And is that lead source, or is that qualified lead? Is it a marketing qualified lead? or is it a sales-generated qualified lead so I can actually understand that? I do variance analysis around customers paying, like I was saying, like, are they paying on time or not? Because that's going to have the biggest impact for me for cash because I can fully control expenses. I can determine when I'm going to pay anything. What I can't determine is when someone's going to pay me. So I'm constantly looking at variance analysis based off of customers' behavior. We also look at cash impact from discounting. How much cash are we losing every time we discount a deal and how are we making up that cash in other ways? And then lastly, I look at cash impact from hiring forecast. So again, back to the story, if I'm delayed on hiring sales people and they are revenue generating, how much cash does it cost to me every day that that person is not hired and what are we doing to fix it? And My mind's about ready to explode here. <laughs> even like,
0: you know, measuring how much does it cost to generate a lead all the way to when it's going to put cash in the bank? To me, that's like top 1% of SaaS companies, they often don't even know how much it costs to generate $1 a pipeline, let alone $1 of cash in a bank. So let me ask you, if you're kind of that founder, first time founder listening to this podcast, like, man, I'm just trying to make sure I got product market fit. At what stage of growth do you really start thinking about this level of granularity for cash management, Brandon? When you found
1: the company? (laughs) Yeah.
0: You really believe that?
1: I do. I mean, I genuinely, and I'm being a little bit comical there, but I genuinely believe you've got to think about cash from day one. You've got to think about why would people invest in you? what story do you have to tell why should they like go along this ride with you what are they going to get from this i mean these are all important things for investors especially if you're if you're doing something new or, or if you've never created a, a company before where you don't have a track record to say look i can do this so the better story you can tell and the sooner you can get your financial house in order as to okay what do i really think this thing's going to cost to build what do i really think this thing's going to cost to go to market how can I benchmark if I'm actually spending money, where I should be spending it or not? I think all of those things are important from day one. and you know, it, it's not as intense on day one, obviously, if you don't have customers. But for, for place, for example, we started building the product in late 2018, and we didn't even go to market really until early 2020, and we've probably invested at least 270,000 development hours or something like that on the core FPNA product. So I need to know where all that money is going. I need to know how to have that conversation with investors about, hey, this is where I'm spending your money and this is why, which is why I say it's so important early on, but it's important for different reasons. It's important to build trust with the investors that you're not wasting their money, that you're spending it carefully. And that trust then helps you long-term as you continue to raise money.
0: Well, even though I think your vision is right on, my reality is when I talk to a lot of, especially less than 5 million ARR companies, even some of the industry standard metrics we've been talking about for 10 years, things like CAC payback period, CAC ratio, which both measure the efficiency of and efficacy of customer acquisition or gross and net dollar retention. Now it's hard to even get them to do those correctly, but let me ask you, if you're a founder and you're doing some of those basic SaaS metrics I just mentioned, are there three or four that you think are most important that have direct causal impact on cash forecasts?
1: Yeah, well, I think first of all, to your point, you've got to run your company. You can't just be doing metrics all day long. That's number one. But the only reason why you can do it now is there's technology that can actually help you do that stuff now. Because first and foremost, build the product, get product market fit, sell the product, make sure customers are really, really happy, and then everything else tends to fall in place. But don't discount this other stuff of not being important if you can find the tools to help you do it. For me, I think the main metrics, bookings ARR, so not recognized revenue ARR, they're different things. Bookings ARR is based off of sales. What's your bookings ARR? What's your compounded monthly growth rates from that booking ARR? Both 12 month and six months, it gives you a really good indication of what is the revenue potential, where the business is going especially if it, it attracts add-ons and reductions and churns and all of that, you really get an understanding of what is the pulse of the business. Then I think burn multiple is another easier one to figure out instead of having to figure out all of these other crazy cash calculations because there's tons of them. I think burn multiple is a really simple one. I think logo retention is a really underestimated one depending on your company, either logo retention or net dollar retention, depending on if you've got a lot of opportunity to upsell or cross-sell or do that with products. A lot of times as an earlier company you don't, so logo retention is important. And then kind of the no-brainer is runway. How many months of cash do you actually have? Like it's, it's that cut and dry, and what are you doing to preserve that capital as long as possible?
0: Hey, that's great insight, but unfortunately our time's already coming to an end. I could talk to you for hours about this, <laughs> but I want the, the audience to get to know you a little bit more on a personal basis. And so I do that through three quick questions. And the first is, you know, is there a CEO or a company that you think is a must follow for fellow SaaS entrepreneurs today?
1: CEO Brett Taylor at Salesforce. I think what he's about to do at Salesforce and has already done is going to shake up the industry. Like I believe it was his idea to buy Slack, which is still something everyone's getting their mind wrapped around, around, but I think is brilliant. I think what Henry has done at Zoom Info and continues to do is phenomenal. You know, I met him way back when when he was doing Discover Org and what that has become. Like we live in Zoom Info. It's fantastic.
0: Well, that's a, a nice segue to my second question. Is What tool should every SaaS company be using as they begin their scaling journey, not your own?
1: We love a product called Conven, which there's similar products that compete with them, but the founders have been awesome, and I always love supporting other founders. So Conven basically records sales conversations and gives you a lot of analytics and all that from them. So we've been using them, I think, since they started, and they've just been phenomenal to work with. I love those guys.
0: So a conversational intelligence tool. Yep. Got gotcha. you. And then last question, you know, a lot of recent college graduates are thinking about their, their career. And for those that are like, I want to be a great B2B SaaS founder, just like Brandon Metcalf. What advice do you give them now at this stage of their career?
1: Yeah, it's really simple. Solve a real problem that you've experienced is my experience. And there's a lot of founders that would disagree with me on that, who are solving problems they haven't experienced, which I think is fantastic. I know for me, Anytime i am really focused on solving a problem I've lived with talent over and now with place, I'm just, I have such deep connection as to what the other person needs this to do, that ultimately I think you make better decisions that way.
0: I think that's really good advice. And I would say go out and listen and learn from people who have been there, done that, like Brandon Metcalf, who's the founder and CEO of Place Technology. Thank you so much for being our guest on the Metrics and Measure Up podcast today, Brandon. Thanks, Ray. It was awesome. And for our listening audience, if you're enjoying the content and the guests that we have, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Give us that five-star recommendation and provide us any recommendations on how we can make this show even better for people just like you. Thank you so much, Brandon. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsSquared.com.